0: section 42 of volume 1e of history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of 1688 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of 1688 by david hume volume 1e section 42 Chapter fifty nine part two. The method of keeping accounts practised in the exchequer was confessedly the exactest, the most ancient, the best known, and the least liable to fraud. The exchequer was for that reason abolished, and the revenue put under the management of a committee, who were subject to no control. The excise was an odious tax, formerly unknown to the nation and was now extended over provisions and the common necessaries of life near one-half of the goods and chattels and at least one-half of the lands rents and revenues of the kingdom had been sequestered to great numbers of loyalists all redress from these sequestrations was refused to the rest the remedy could be obtained only by paying large compositions, and subscribing the covenant which they abhorred. Besides pitying the ruin and desolation of so many ancient and honourable families, indifferent spectators could not but blame the hardship of punishing with such severity actions which the law, in its usual and most undisputed interpretation, strictly required of every subject the severities too exercised against the episcopal clergy naturally affected the royalists and even all men of candour in a sensible manner by the most moderate computation it appears that above one half of the established clergy had been turned out to beggary and want for no other crime than their adhering to the civil and religious principles in which they had been educated, and for their attachment to those laws under whose countenance they had at first embraced that profession. To renounce episcopy and the liturgy, and to subscribe to the covenant were the only terms which could save them from so rigorous a fate; and if the least mark of malignancy, as it was called, or affection to the king, who so entirely loved them, had ever escaped their lips, even this hard choice was not permitted. The sacred character which gives the priesthood such authority over mankind, becoming more venerable from the sufferings endured for the sake of principle by these distressed royalists, aggravated the general indignation against their persecutors but what excited the most universal complaint was the unlimited tyranny and despotic rule of the country committees during the war the discretionary power of these courts was excused from the plea of necessity but the nation was reduced to despair when it saw neither end put to their duration nor bounds to their authority these could sequester fine imprison and corporally punish, without law or remedy. They interposed in questions of private property, under color of malignancy they exercised vengeance against their private enemies. To the obnoxious, and sometimes to the innocent, they sold their protection, and instead of one star chamber which had been abolished, a great number were anew erected, fortified with better pretenses and armed with more unlimited authority could anything have increased the indignation against that slavery into which the nation from the too eager pursuit of liberty had fallen it must have been the reflection on the pretenses by which the people had so long been deluded the sanctified hypocrites who called their oppressions the spoiling of the egyptians and their rigid severity the dominion of the elect, interlarded all their iniquities with long and fervent prayers, saved themselves from blushing by their pious grimaces, and exercised in the name of the Lord all their cruelty on men. An undisguised violence could be forgiven, but such a mockery of the understanding, such an abuse of religion, were, with men of penetration, objects of peculiar resentment the parliament conscious of their decay in popularity seeing a formidable armed force advance upon them were reduced to despair and found all their resources much inferior to the present necessity london still retained a strong attachment to presbyterianism and its militia which was numerous and had acquired reputation in the wars had by a late ordinance been put into hands in whom the Parliament could entirely confide. This militia was now called out, and ordered to guard the lines which had been drawn round the city, in order to secure it against the King. A body of horse was ordered to be instantly levied. Many officers who had been cashiered by the new model of the army offered their service to the Parliament an army of five thousand men lay in the north under the command of general points who was of the presbyterian faction but these were too distant to be employed in so urgent a necessity the forces destined for ireland were quartered in the west and though deemed faithful to the parliament they also lay at a distance many inland garrisons were commanded by officers of the same party but their troops, being so much dispersed, could at present be of no manner of service. The Scots were faithful friends, and zealous for presbytery and covenant, but a long time was required ere they could collect their forces and march to the assistance of the Parliament. In this situation it was thought more prudent to submit, and by compliance to stop the fury of the engaged army, the declaration by which the military petitioners had been voted public enemies was recalled and erased from the journal book this was the first symptom which the parliament gave of submission and the army hoping by terror alone to effect all their purposes stopped at st albans and entered into negotiation with their masters here commenced the encroachments of the military upon the civil authority The army, in their usurpations on the Parliament, copied exactly the model which the Parliament itself had set them in their recent usurpations on the Crown. Every day they rose in their demands. If one claim was granted, they had another ready, still more enormous and exorbitant, and were determined never to be satisfied. At first they pretended only to petition for what concerned themselves as soldiers. Next they must have a vindication of their character. Then it was necessary that their enemies be punished. At last they claimed a right of modeling the whole government and settling the nation. They preserved in words all deference and respect to the parliament, but in reality insulted them and tyrannized over them that assembly they pretended not to accuse it was only evil counsellors who seduced and betrayed it they proceeded so far as to name eleven members whom in general terms they charged with high treason as enemies to the army and evil counsellors to the parliament their names were hollis sir philip stapleton sir william lewis Sir John Clotworthy, Sir William Waller, Sir John Maynard, Massey, Glynn, Long, Harley, and Nichols. These were the very leaders of the Presbyterian party. They insisted that these members should immediately be sequestered from Parliament and be thrown into prison. The Commons replied that they could not, upon a general charge, proceed so far. The army observed to them that the cases of Strafford and Lord were direct precedents for that purpose. At last the eleven members themselves, not to give occasion for discord, begged leave to retire from the House, and the army for the present seemed satisfied with this mark of submission. Pretending that the Parliament intended to levy war upon them, and to involve the nation again in blood and confusion, they required that all new levies be stopped. The Parliament complied with this demand. There being no signs of resistance, the army, in order to save appearances, removed, at the desire of the Parliament, to a greater distance from London, and fixed their headquarters at Reading. They carried the King along with them in all their marches. The prince now found himself in a better situation than at Holdenby, and had attained some greater degree of freedom as well of consideration with both parties. All his friends had access to his presence. His correspondence with the queen was not interrupted. His chaplains were restored to him, and he was allowed the use of the liturgy. His children were once allowed to visit him and they passed a few days at Caversham, where he then resided. He had not seen the Duke of Gloucester, his youngest son, and the Princess Elizabeth since he left London, at the commencement of the civil disorders, nor the Duke of York since he went to the Scottish army before Newark. No private man, unacquainted with the pleasures of a court and the tumult of a camp, more passionately loved his family and did this good prince, and such an instance of indulgence in the army was extremely grateful to him. Cromwell, who was witness to the meeting of the royal family, confessed that he never had been present at so tender a scene, and he extremely applauded the benignity which displayed itself in the whole disposition and behavior of Charles. That artful politician, as well as the leaders of all parties, paid court to the king and fortune notwithstanding all his calamities seemed again to smile upon him the parliament afraid of his forming some accommodation with the army addressed him in a more respectful style than formerly and invited him to reside at richmond and contribute his assistance to the settlement of the nation the chief officers treated him with regard and spake on all occasions of restoring him to his just powers and prerogatives in the public declarations of the army the settlement of his revenue and authority was insisted on the royalists everywhere entertained hopes of the restoration of monarchy and the favour which they universally bore to the army contributed very much to discourage the parliament and to forward their submission the king began to feel of what consequence he was the more the national confusions increased the more was he confident that all parties would at length have recourse to his lawful authority as the only remedy for the public disorders you cannot be without me said he on several occasions you cannot settle the nation but by my assistance a people without government and without liberty a parliament without authority, an army without a legal master, distractions everywhere, terrors, oppressions, convulsions, from this scene of confusion which could not long continue, all men he hoped would be brought to reflect on that ancient government under which they and their ancestors had so long enjoyed happiness and tranquillity. THOUGH CHARLES KEPT HIS EARS OPEN TO ALL PROPOSALS AND EXPECTED TO HOLD THE BALANCE BETWEEN THE OPPOSITE PARTIES, HE ENTERTAINED MORE HOPES OF ACCOMMODATION WITH THE ARMY. HE HAD EXPERIENCED THE EXTREME RIGOUR OF THE PARLIAMENT. THEY PRETENDED TOTALLY TO ANNIHILATE HIS AUTHORITY. THEY HAD CONFINED HIS PERSON. IN BOTH THESE PARTICULARS THE ARMY SHOWED MORE INDULGENCE he had a free intercourse with his friends, and in the proposals which the Council of Officers sent for the settlement of the nation, they insisted neither on the abolition of episcopacy nor on the punishment of the Royalists, the two points to which the King had the most extreme reluctance, and they demanded that a period should be put to the present Parliament, the event for which he most ardently longed. His conjunction too seemed more natural with the generals than with that usurping assembly who had so long assumed the entire sovereignty of the state and who had declared their resolution still to continue masters by gratifying a few persons with titles and preferments he might draw over he hoped the whole military power and in an instant reinstate himself in his civil authority To Ireton, he offered the lieutenancy of Ireland, to Cromwell the garter, the title of Earl of Essex, and the command of the army. Negotiations to this purpose were secretly conducted. Cromwell pretended to hearken to them, and was well pleased to keep the door open for an accommodation, if the course of events should at any time render it necessary, and the king who had no suspicion that one born a private gentleman could entertain the daring ambition of seizing a sceptre transmitted through a long line of monarchs indulged hopes that he would at last embrace a measure which by all the motives of duty interest and safety seemed to be recommended to him while cromwell allured the king by these expectations he still continued his scheme of reducing the parliament to subjection and depriving them of all means of resistance. To gratify the army, the Parliament invested Fairfax with the title of General-in-Chief of all the forces in England and Ireland, and entrusted the whole military authority to a person who, though well inclined to their service, was no longer at his own disposal. They voted that the troops which, in obedience to them, had enlisted for Ireland, and deserted the rebellious army, should be disbanded, or, in other words, be punished for their fidelity. The forces in the north, under points, had already mutinied against their general, and had entered into an association with that body of the army which was so successfully employed in exalting the military above the civil authority. That no resource might remain to the Parliament, it was demanded that the militia of London should be changed, the Presbyterian commissioners displaced, and the command restored to those who during the course of the war had constantly exercised it. The Parliament even complied with so violent a demand, and passed a vote in obedience to the army by this unlimited patience they purposed to temporize under their present difficulties and they hoped to find a more favorable opportunity for recovering their authority and influence but the impatience of the city lost them all the advantage of their cautious measures a petition against the alteration of the militia was carried to westminster attended by the apprentices and seditious multitude who besieged the door of the house of commons and by their clamour noise and violence obliged them to reverse that vote which they had passed so lately when gratified in this pretension they immediately dispersed and left the parliament at liberty no sooner was intelligence of this tumult conveyed to reading than the army was put in motion the two houses being under restraint they were resolved they said to vindicate against the seditious citizens the invaded privileges of parliament and restore that assembly to its just freedom of debate and council in their way to london they were drawn up on hounslow heath a formidable body twenty thousand strong and determined without regard to laws or liberty to pursue whatever measures their generals should dictate to them. Here the most favorable event happened to quicken and encourage their advance. The speakers of the two houses, Manchester and Lenthol, attended by eight peers and about sixty commoners, having secretly retired from the city, presented themselves with their maces and all the ensigns of their dignity, and complaining of the violence put upon them, applied to the army for defence and protection. They were received with shouts and acclamations. Respect was paid to them as to the Parliament of England and the army, being provided with so plausible a pretense, which in all public transactions is of great consequence, advanced to chastise the rebellious city and to reinstate the violated Parliament. Neither Lenthal nor Manchester were esteemed independents, and such a step in them was unexpected, but they probably foresaw that the army must in the end prevail, and they were willing to pay court in time to that authority which began to predominate in the nation. The Parliament forced from their temporizing measures and obliged to resign at once, or combat for their liberty and power, prepared themselves with vigor for defense, and determined to resist the violence of the army. The two houses immediately chose new speakers, Lord Hunsdon and Henry Pelham. They renewed their former orders for enlisting troops. They appointed Massey to be commander, They ordered the trained bands to man the lines, and the whole city was in a ferment, and resounded with military preparations. When any intelligence arrived, that the army stopped or retreated, the shout of one and all ran with alacrity from street to street among the citizens. When news came of their advancing, the cry of, Treat and capitulate! was no less loud and vehement. The terror of a universal pillage and even massacre had seized the timid inhabitants. As the army approached, Rainsborough, being sent by the general over the river, presented himself before Southwark, and was gladly received by some soldiers who were quartered there for its defence, and who were resolved not to separate their interests from those of the army, It behooved, then, the Parliament to submit. The army marched in triumph through the city, but preserved the greatest order, decency, and appearance of humility. They conducted to Westminster the two speakers, who took their seats as if nothing had happened. The eleven impeached members, being accused as authors of the tumult, were expelled, and most of them retired beyond sea seven peers were impeached the mayor one sheriff and three aldermen sent to the tower several citizens and officers of the militia committed to prison every deed of the parliament annulled from the day of the tumult till the return of the speakers the lines about the city leveled the militia restored to the independence regiments quartered in whitehall and the mews and the parliament being reduced to a regular formed servitude, a day was appointed of solemn thanksgiving for the restoration of its liberty. End of section forty two, chapter fifty nine, part two.